as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Someone has said, you know, the problem for the church is not that the church does its work in the world, but rather too often the world is doing its work in the church. The problem is not that we carry out the mission to which God has called us in a fallen world that has problems associated to be sure with it, to be sure. But the problem is not that the church is in the world, but all too often the world is in the church. Now, why would that be a problem? As you do a cursory review of the teaching of your Bible, passage after passage tells you about the contrast, the absolute contrast that God has between good and evil, between righteousness and sin, between light and darkness, between believers and non-believers, between those who are called out and those who are still in the world, between the church and the world. Over and over again, God warns us about worldliness. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James chapter 1 says that pure religion that God our Father accepts is this, that we help widows and orphans in their affliction and we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Over and over, the Bible warns us about worldliness and worldliness infiltrating our lives individually and worldliness infiltrating the thinking of the church corporately. This opposition that exists between the culture of God's community, the church, and the community of man, the world, emanates, has its root in a radically different value system. We value, we prize, we prioritize different things. And we have, as believers, if you name the name of Jesus Christ on this Lord's Day, this Mother's Lord's Day, if you name the name of Jesus Christ, you've been called out of the world, out of the world not to be like the world then in your values, as reflected in the way we talk and act, but rather to have a transformative effect on the world. But I think if we're honest, if you're honest, we would say, very often, rather than us having a transforming influence on the world, we too often become conformed by and to it. And the values that we hold, whether God's values or the world's values, permeate everything. The values that you hold permeate everything you do and everything you say. Every corner of our lives, every relationship that we have, including this most important relationship, God-given, graciously provided relationship of the family, and worldly values can infiltrate even professing Christian homes. Because the culture tells you something radically different about family than what God says, does it not? The world tells you something entirely different about womanhood and manhood and husbands and wives 
than what God says. And so there was a survey some time ago in which 70% of the mothers surveyed who responded to the survey said they would not have children again if they could do it over. And one of the reasons that such a high number of women would respond that way is that our culture has defined success in a way that virtually excludes a biblical approach to motherhood. One has written, some people decide to have a baby for the same reasons that others buy a dog. They think a baby is merely someone to play with. And they do not anticipate the awesome and totally consuming responsibility that a child creates. Perhaps these couples should buy a dog instead. It would require less care, and if it's neglected, the magnitude of the consequences would be far less. We are bombarded daily from the world and the culture that represents the world's values with a philosophy that's antithetical to motherhood, according to the Bible. For instance, in a Mother's Day, on a Mother's Day in a hometown paper, the lead article in the women's section praised the role of motherhood, but right under it was another article under this heading. Work wanted, ambitious women seek satisfying jobs. And in the article, an employability instructor said, quote, people want a job for the personal fulfillment. And further on in the article, she encouraged women, quote, at some time when you take charge of your life, you're going to say it means more to me what I think of myself than what anyone else thinks about me. She said, you have to be extremely selfish. That's what the world says. That's what the culture says. And very often, having been bombarded with that, it's very easy for us to buy into that. And of course, the images presented on television have enormous effects in the way we think about success. In a TV advertisement, a woman just says, frankly, I'm worth it. Another commercial doesn't even try to hide the subtle attitude when a woman says emphatically, I'm doing this for number one. And you can see the effects then of attitudes expressed in things like the survey that I mentioned earlier. You can hear it in the comments of mothers themselves. How often have you heard a woman, when asked what she does, reply, oh, I'm just a housewife? You know, that just a housewife approach has been absorbed because the work of a housewife does not fit the culture's definition of success. Betty Friedan, in 1966, wrote a book that is credited with having started what we now know as the feminist movement. She wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. Here's what she says in that book. Is the homemaker's house in reality a comfortable concentration camp? Have not these women trapped themselves within the narrow wall of their homes? They've become dependent, passive, childlike. They've given up their adult frame of reference to live at the lower level of food and things. The work they do does not require adult capabilities. It is endless, monotonous, and unrewarding. Well, I have seen that job up close and personal. And when pursued God's way, 
It is absolutely rewarding, not only for the woman who pursues it, as my wife does and with whom I am blessed to be a partner in the endeavor of raising our children, not only for the woman who does, but for the man and the children who benefit from the life of a woman who says, I will not, I will not be conformed to the world's view of me and who I am and what God has called me to do. With success defined, as the world does over and over in so many ways, not just to the women, to the men, to all of us, right? Defined that way as pursuing your own interests. It's little wonder then that motherhood is devalued. The image of success in our culture is, I think you would agree, self-fulfillment, self-confidence, self-sufficiently, being self-assertive. But how does the Bible define success? In particular, how does the Bible define success on this day for women? Today we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to see that God defines success, I said 1 Timothy, 1 Peter chapter 3, that God defines success as godliness, godly character, expressed in the various roles to which God has called us. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're given a snapshot with four characteristics of a godly woman. Verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. You see right away, do you not, that God's definition of success is diametrically opposed to that of the world. I mean, you just read the S word in that passage. Submit. And all the women are like, it's Mother's Day. And I've got to go to a place where a male is going to tell me to submit. But stay with me. For two reasons. One, and most important, who cares what I tell you? The only issue is what does God tell us? That's the only issue, number one. And secondly, as we're going to see, God does not, contrary to what many have come to understand, God does not only tell women to submit. He tells men to submit. He tells all of us to submit in the various relationships in which we are placed. So stay with me, if you will. But in any case, whether to men or women or children, the idea that any of us would submit in any relationship is contrary to what the world tells us about success. But God gives these four characteristics, and the first of them is a godly woman is submissive. Now, here's what the word submit means. The word submit literally means to place under. And so that prefix sub, under, Subway, under the road, submarine, under the water, submit. And when we submit, we, replace, we, we simply place ourselves under something. In certain relationships, we place ourselves under the authority of one who is over us. But we're going to see that we can place ourselves and must place ourselves not only under authority, but under other things as well. 
Now, because the world does not define roles or anything else for that matter, according to God's standard, this command that wives submit to their husbands has caused great controversy. Just a few years ago, some of you may remember the Southern Baptist Convention, Convention issued a resolution at its annual meeting. It read in part this, quote, wives should graciously submit to the leadership of their husbands. You may recall the tremendous stir that that caused. I recall seeing the president of Southern Seminary on the Larry King show and the call-ins were just vicious. And a number of factors have worked together to give society in general and even many professing believers a negative view of this idea of placing oneself under submission. Those factors include our own sinful resistance to things like authority our failure to define submission fully and completely as the Bible does, and the abuse of biblical roles by some, particularly men. Even though the world despises a submissive attitude, the Bible tells us it's of great worth to God. It's my hope that a brief rehearsal of the Bible's teaching regarding the essential equality of men and women but the difference of function in the roles to which he has assigned us will help dispel some of the false notions about what submission is. The Bible is very emphatic that men and women are equal. Equal before God. And so the Bible says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, a few verses below the verses that we just read at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3, husbands are told that in verse number 7, take a look, that in the same way, husbands are to be considerate as you live with your wives and as you treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Women are heirs with males of the gracious gift of life. We are one before the Lord. Our spiritual status before him is absolutely equal. Neither male nor female. And this notion of submitting, placing yourself under, is not just for women. The passage we just read, verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. Notice the word likewise, in the same way. Husbands likewise. Husbands in the same way. So women are told in verse 1, submit to your own husbands. And then in verse 7, likewise husbands, and as we're going to see, likewise, in the same way, this is the way you place yourself under. Be respectful of your wives. Consider it as you live with them, because they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, why do I say that that is suggesting that men have to submit as well? You're in 1 Peter chapter 3. And let me tell you what the context of 1 Peter chapter 3 is. There are five chapters in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter, who wrote it, was seeking to encourage a group of persecuted Christians at that time. 
to show Christ's likeness despite the difficulty of your circumstances. And so he spends chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 2 reminding them of their past blessings in Christ, having been called out of the world and to Christ, and having been given eternal salvation that can never be taken away, no matter what the world does, no matter what persecution you suffer, that will never change. And so he encourages them first with their blessings in the past. And then, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, this then is how you're to behave. As a persecuted minority, in a hostile world, in the present. And he gives that instruction all the way through chapter 4 and verse 6. And then beginning in chapter 4 and verse 7, he tells them to look to the future, to the blessed hope of the return of their Lord and Savior. Now, chapter 3 is right in the middle of all that. Right in the middle of having been reminded of blessings in the past and now being instructed about behavior in the present. Here's how you're to live in the present because you're not part of the world and you belong to Christ. And he starts that whole discussion in chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So the instruction given to women in chapter 3 and verse 1 and then to men in chapter 3 and verse 7 is all a continuation of the instruction that began in chapter 2 and verse 13 regarding submitting. And notice who submits. Submit yourselves. Every one of you, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority that's instituted among men. And now Peter is going to give some examples of that. He says in verse 13, whether to the king, as to the supreme authority, or to governors. The passage then goes on to speak of authority and submission, not only in terms of government, but then down in verse 18, with regard to employment. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And so as we think about God's command to women to submit to, yes, the authority of their husbands in the home, God is not saying, women, you play this role because you're somehow inferior. I am not inferior to Barack Obama. He's the president. He's the governing authority. I'm not inferior to him, but I have a role to play in submitting to the authority of God-given government. You say, God-given government. I didn't vote for Obama. But I remind you, who was on the throne when Peter wrote this? It was Nero. Certifiably insane. We have never had a president, no matter what your political persuasion, we have never had a president like Nero. Thank God. And yet we are told to submit, not because we're inferior, but because these are institutions that God has ordained ultimately for our good and for his glory. And so to women or to employees, to their boss, you're not inferior to your boss, but you place yourself under his or her authority. And likewise, a woman who submits to her husband is not inferior to him. It's not a matter of who she is. It's a matter of what she does. 
If you care to jot down Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Ephesians 5.22 again says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And the husbands, the men, always quote that, verse 22. But we forget, conveniently, that verse 21, the verse right before it, says this. Submit yourselves to one another. And then goes on to give examples of submission just like Peter does. Wives in the home. Employees. Slaves. And so on. Okay. I'm not inferior to my husband. We're equal before God. Submission, the role that I play in the home as a wife, does not make me inferior. It's simply the function that God has given me. But you said men are supposed to submit. I see that. The progression of thought in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, I see the submit to one another in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. How do husbands submit, the ladies say? To what do they submit? The word means to place yourself under. Sometimes in a given relationship, that means you're placing yourself under the authority of one above you. For husbands, here's what it means. We don't place ourselves under the authority of our wives. We do place ourselves under the needs of of our wives. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Paul said, in following up that instruction, submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands in the home. But then he says, husbands, in verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Nothing could be further from the biblical, biblical presentation than a guy coming in and saying, my home's my castle, woman, you do what I tell you. It's a perversion of the biblical picture that God has given. And yet many men have taken that kind of unbiblical and even unchristian approach. Now, in case you need any further proof, and I don't want to belabor it any much further, but there's another relationship given in the Bible, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And did you know that that relationship has submission in it? And the Son is in no way inferior to the Father? It would be a heresy of the first order to say because the Son submits to the Father that he is somehow inferior to the Father. They are equally God, fully God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But First Corinthians 11 says... I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God, the Father. In who we are, we are equal. In our roles, God has given us a function to carry out in the various relationships to which he has assigned us. Now, submission can be difficult in any relationship if the authority that you're supposed to place yourself under is not worthy of respect. It's difficult in any relationship, even if they are worthy of respect because of our sinful tendency to buck against it. But if you're in a relationship where the one who is placed above you is not honorable and not worthy of respect, but when Peter wrote this, Nero was on the throne, not worthy of respect, but we still place ourselves under. And hear this, even a bad government is a thousand times preferable to anarchy. Loss of authority by the employer in the workplace is what contributed to a lack of productivity on the part of American workers. And what's true in government and true in industry is also true in the home. 
hear this, if we buy into the false notions that the culture is peddling rather than what God is saying, it will continue to have devastating effects upon our homes. And I am calling you, Christian woman, to define who you are, not based upon the picture that the world is giving you, but the picture that God has clearly given in the Word of God. Let me give you two quick additional issues regarding submission in the home as given in 1 Peter 3. Look at chapter or verse 1 again. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And it's worded in such a way as to communicate that submission is a continual responsibility. The verb submit is written there in a way as to describe a continuing action. It's unfortunate that many Christians exhibit an attitude that says, I'll submit to leadership so long as my leaders take me in a direction that I want to go. I'll submit to my husband if he's the sort of man I've determined he ought to be, or if he's particularly sensitive to my needs and desires. The scriptures indicate that in any relationship of submission, there's only one cause for defiance of God-ordained authority structures, and that's when we are told by that authority to do something that's directly contrary to what God has commanded. And we see an example of that in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. The apostles were told, do not preach in Jesus' name. Do you remember their famous response? We must obey God rather than men. And one other thing with regard to submission, we'll move on. Submission is a limited responsibility. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 3 says, Wives, submit to who? To your own husbands. And so it is not women submitting to men in general. No man, because he's a male, has any right of authority simply because he's a male over my wife. And so what you're given here, ladies... In verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter chapter 3, given the entire context of the five chapters of 1 Peter, is this is how a godly Christian woman lives in a pagan, worldly culture. It's a contrast between the values that you bring to your family relationships and those shown in society at large. And I ask you, do you live in a worldly, pagan culture? Of course we do, with all of the same worldly values that were exhibited at the time that Peter wrote. A godly woman has four characteristics. The first one is she's submissive. A Christian woman is willing to place herself under, not necessarily because he's good, because God is good. And God will receive glory out of my obedience to him in the relationships in which he has placed me. The same thing is true for men. Men, you cannot remind your wife to submit to you in the home. When you come home from work and you complain about your boss and refuse to submit to him, do you remember the context? Slaves, employees, submit to your masters. If we complain about the government and say unkind things, unbecoming of Christians about those who are over us in government, we cannot then come and say, but when I'm in charge, now it's time to see some submission going on. A godly woman exhibits her Christ-like character because she's submissive in this God-given relationship, but godly men are to do the same thing in the relationships that God has called them to. 
and they are to submit at all times to the needs of their wives and their children. A godly woman is submissive. Secondly, she is evangelistic. The very reason for the command to be submissive is that some had unbelieving husbands. And the wives' submissive attitude and actions may be used to win that unbelieving pagan husband. So again, verses 1 and 2, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Her goal is to see her husband saved. Some of you ladies have unsaved husbands. And so there's a direct, direct application to you. But you say, my husband's saved, or I'm not married. Don't tune out. Remember, the entire context of this is how we display Christian character in a pagan culture. One of those is how we approach our various relationships. This is a particular relationship, but he has a number of others, and given in the larger passage, and the principles here apply to our relationships elsewhere. But the saved wife, the Christian wife's, the believing wife's goal is to see her unsaved, unbelieving husband come to Jesus. The way this is written in Greek, the language in which your New Testament was originally written, it's called a condition of reality. That is, it was a fact that some to whom this was written had indeed unbelieving husbands. If any of them do not believe, and some do not, or it could be since you have husbands who do not believe, then this is what you should do. Have you all noticed what many have called the feminization of the church? Here's what they mean by that. If you go into your average church today and you look around at how many males and how many females there are there, there will be about a 70-30, sometimes 80-20, women-to-men ratio. It's a very sad thing. I'm glad to say, and I haven't counted, but it looks pretty close. Thanks be to God. But that's not what's happening in our church. Throughout church history, it's a fact that women have often been more open to the gospel and spiritual truth. You know, we just heard at our men's retreat this past weekend about the disciples all fleeing and, you know, huddling in a room in John chapter 20 that we saw last week after the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But where are the women going? The women are going to the tomb. The women are still following. That might be because men tend to be more pridefully self-reliant and Christianity breaks down our self-reliance. The very heart of the gospel is the fact we can do nothing for ourselves in the sight of God. And so here you have a situation not uncommon throughout church history, not uncommon in our own church and churches where you have believing women and an unbelieving husband. Her goal is to win him to the Lord. Now notice it's not the goal is not self-promotion. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not the establishment of personal rights. It's the evangelization of a lost husband. Now let me note two things about the way that's worded. The word that's translated one, that he may be won over. That was originally an economic term that referred to a profit margin. The establishment of your independence and rights yields no profit, neither for you, for the church, or for eternity. But the evangelization of the lost, in this case, a lost husband, 
in a marriage relationship is of great profit. He may be won over, profiting him eternally, profiting you as well. The text is also worded in a way that it indicates that the winning of this unbelieving husband is possible, but in most cases, not probable. Now, that should not surprise us because the vast majority of the world rejects Christ and the gospel. Isn't it true that the vast majority of the world is not saved? And those husbands who are unsaved fit into that vast majority. It has been the case throughout church history. It is the case now. There is hope, but there is no guarantee. And let me just say this should be a lesson to those who are not yet married. God tells you, you marry in the faith. Parents, when your teenage daughter comes and says, I want to date this unsaved guy, it ain't happening. It'll be over my dead body or over you dead, your dead body. Take your choice. Because God says we are not to be unequally yoked together and we are not going to take the first step in that direction. We need to teach our children that now, not later. We need to cultivate relationships now, not later, between our young people, our boys and our girls. That if God so grants some of these young people in our own church, will be married. Because they have a common faith and a common Lord. And notice the method by which this woman is to seek to win her husband. Again in verse 1. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be one without words. Peter's saying, don't nag. No one likes to be nagged. And direct application, ladies, if you have an unsaved spouse at home, do not tape post-it note Bible verses to his beer cans. He'll get ticked. Do not get ready for church in an especially noisy fashion. You're slamming some drawers in the closet. You're, you're mad because he's sleeping in. He should be getting up. He should be helping you with the kids. All that's true. He should be doing all of that. But he's a, a pagan. He's unsaved. He doesn't have the same values. He doesn't do that. Don't rehearse the Roman's road to salvation every time you pray before a meal. And Lord, if there are any unsaved people at this table. <laughs> but how is she to be one? Is he to be one through her lifestyle, not through the words, but through the lifestyle? Verse two. Without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. If God is going to use you to reach your spouse with the gospel, it will only be through what you do and not what you say. The word behavior is a comprehensive term, meaning lifestyle. And so, ladies, you cannot fight your husband day in and day out, criticize and demean, challenge his authority in the home, turn the children against him, and expect him to embrace your Savior because you read your Bible and go to church on Sunday he will conclude that you're not obeying the very book that you're calling him to. And he would be right about that. Instead, God says he must see a pure life, one that's characterized by reverence, 
Far from criticizing, demeaning, nagging, the godly woman demonstrates respect for her husband in word and in deed. She has these four characteristics. She's submissive. She's evangelistic. Here's a third one. Peter says a godly woman is beautiful. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Outward adornment. Braided hair, he lists. Wearing of gold jewelry, fine clothes, and so on. Now, we don't have time, nor is it necessary, to look at the various passages in the Bible where you have women wearing jewelry commended by God. In the Old Testament, for instance. As the Bible talks about the story of Solomon and some of his companions, it talks about the beauty with which they were adorned. Some of that was with jewels. God does not say you can never wear and should not wear in any circumstances jewels or braid your hair. The idea here in this context is that you communicate that you want attention to yourself. In a nutshell, what verses 3 and 4 are saying is this. It's not external beauty by braided hair and jewelry, but it's internal character, godly character exhibited through our day day in, day out lives and behavior. And the difference between them is this. The one says, look at me. The other says, look at Christ. We sometimes misdefine immodesty. If I say the word immodest, most of you think too much flesh, not enough fabric, right? That's immodest. And it is. But we can be immodest in a number of ways, all of which have this in common. Look at me. They're all immodest. And so we can dress covered, but still look at me. We can speak in ways that say, look at me. How many times have you been with someone who every time you sit down with that individual, the conversation is about who? Look at me. Immodest. And God says, you will not win your husband with that sort of external approach, immodest approach, calling attention to yourself. The one to whom you want to direct his attention, and we want to direct the attention of all of those, whether husbands or co-workers or neighbors or fam other family members who are unsaved. We're not looking to direct their attention to us. We're looking to direct their attention to him. And how do we do that? By exemplifying Christ-like character in the relationships to which he has called us. That's why at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, after saying submit yourselves to the governing authorities and submit yourselves slaves to your masters, the example given at the end of chapter 2 is none other than Jesus Christ himself, who, when he was tried and persecuted, he did not return insult for insult. He took the persecution with a gentle and quiet spirit and thereby showed a radically different character than that which is exhibited by the world. And ladies and men, we are called to that kind of beauty. Then the fourth character characteristic of this godly woman is that she's teachable. Notice verses 5 and 6. 
This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. If you're going to be a godly wife, if we're going to be godly people, then we have to be teachable people. You all have heard me say before that experience is the best teacher, especially when it's someone else's experience. You can learn from what people did right, and you can learn from what they did wrong. And humility dictates that we look to those who have gone before us, and we are, have teachable hearts as we see what they did right, and yes, seek to improve what they did wrong. Sarah, she's the example given. Wife of Abraham, did she do everything right? It would appear not. This ought to give you great hope, ladies. You don't do everything right either, nor do I. But she did some things right. She was submissive to her husband. And despite the fear that goes with that, into verse number 6, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. There is a vulnerability that goes with every submission authority relationship. We are vulnerable to the excesses of an authoritarian government, are we not? You are vulnerable as an employee to the excesses of an overbearing boss. Ladies, when you submit to the authority of your husbands in your home, there is indeed a vulnerability that goes with that. But your protection does not ultimately come from the government or from your boss or even from your husband. It ultimately comes from the Lord. And when you submit in all, when we submit in these various relationships, we are not saying I'm submitting because you're good and I know you'll take care of me. We're submitting out of reverence for God to bring glory to him in the relationships to which he has called us. It says at the end of verse 6, and I'll conclude with this, you are her daughters if you do this. You are Sarah's daughters. Sarah was Abraham's wife. You remember who Abraham was. He's considered the father, called the father of the faithful. To put this another way, what Peter is saying is this. You are acting like children of faith. You are behaving like children who are part of the community of faith. You can act like one of Abraham's children if you follow the faithfulness of Abraham. You can be considered one of Sarah's children if you follow the model of Sarah in her obedience of submission. It's another way of saying this. This is the way saved people behave. This is the way people who have been called out of the world into God behave. And so Peter is saying, wives, slaves, citizens, husbands, you live in a pagan world, but you've been called out of that world and to God. And this is the way Christians behave in all of those relationships. It is diametrically opposed to the world. It is radically different. You are marching to the beat of a different drummer. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. And so ladies... And gentlemen, here's the question and the decision all of us have to make. 
Do I want to be like Christ? Or do I want to be like the world? And if you want to be like Jesus Christ, he says it's going to be radically different from the world. And he gives you this model of a godly woman, which God defines as success. We men have to do the same thing. I'll beat up on you guys on Father's Day. But we have to say the same thing. Do I want to be like the world or do I want to be like Christ? Do I want to be a party boy, sports guy who just plays all the time? That's what the world's telling you. And you've got drives and desires that are just insatiable and boys will be boys nonsense. That's what the world says. It's not what God says. And the question for all of us is, do I want to be like Christ or do I want to be like the world? If you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ, you said then at that time, I want to be like Jesus. We all falter in that commitment, and that's why every week we have an opportunity to pray and say, Lord, we've been reminded of what your standard is and what you have told us to be and do. We ask you to forgive us. And in your grace, help us to be the kind of women and men and children that you've called us to be. But there might be some people here who have never come to Jesus Christ. You don't know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have heard in my opening prayer, none of us are children of God by nature. It's supernature, supernatural. You are born again into God's family. How does that happen? Well, here's what you do. You realize that you're a sinner. That you have desires to go your own route rather than God's route. That's what sin is. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to obey God. And all of us have trespassed that, every last one of us. And so you realize you're a sinner, but you recognize what Christ has done to bring you into relationship with the God who you do not have a relationship with right now. If you've never come to him, you do not have a relationship with God through Christ. But he died to give you access to that relationship. You repent of your sin. Lord, I want to follow you rather than go my own way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow. And as we do... It would be a marvelous thing if on this Mother's Day 2009 there were some women and some men who would come to Jesus Christ for the first time. You come to him and he says, you're saved forever. I will change you from the inside out. Your values will be different. You will begin to see, even though it's difficult, it's worth every effort in order to be Christ-like in my various relationships. And so you receive him into your life through, in your own words, from your heart to God. This is no magical incantation. It's just an example prayer of calling upon the Lord to be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the words of your servant Peter. We thank you, Lord, for your word in general. And the purpose for which you gave it and the effects that it has. Now these 2,000 years since it was completed. Lord, it searches the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And the word of God that you have given us to order our lives addresses every issue and every relationship that we'll face. Sometimes very directly in precept and in direct command like we've seen today for godly women in their homes. Sometimes in in principle, the same principles of evangelizing the lost and showing Christ-like character 
that these wives are to have in their homes apply to the men and apply to the children and apply to us in our work relationships and our neighborhood relationships. Thank you, Lord, for instructing us, showing us what you require. And we thank you as well, Lord, that you don't just tell us what we're to do, but you give us the power to do it. In the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, indwelling each one who has been born into your family, I thank you, Lord, that sin is no longer my master, our master, but its power has been broken, and we can obey what you have told us. Difficult though it be, only because of your grace. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that there are people right now, Lord, who are coming to you for a relationship with you through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they do, they are receiving the Holy Spirit who will change them from the inside out, transform their values, cause them to desire what you want rather than what they want. Lord, I pray in particular on this day for every woman here, I ask your blessing upon them. I ask, Lord, that every one of them would become your children, spiritual children. And those who are your spiritual children, that they would love you more than they love themselves that they would love what family is designed to produce more than family itself. None of these relationships, Lord God, are ends in themselves. They are means to the end of showing Jesus to the world, bringing glory to your name. Lord, I pray that these women will see that. I pray that we as men will see that in our various relationships and we'll desire that above all things. We'll embrace it and we'll pursue it with all the strength that you provide. Thank you for this day and for the blessing of looking into your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.